Hello, everyone, faithful listeners and Israeli politics addicts. This is Election Overdose. I'm Dahlia Shenlin, and with me is Anshul Pfeffer. And today is September 15th. Why is that date so important, Anshul? Well, we probably don't have to explain this to those who have been with us from the beginning of the season, but just for the benefit of anyone who may have forgotten, September 15th, Thursday, midnight, is the deadline for filing lists with the election commission with the central election commission and though we always call them parties here and we'll continue calling them parties technically and legally what we have are lists of candidates and as of tonight the lists are going to be final we'll know which parties have filed which parties have split which parties have folded who are the candidates what the order is and so on and as you like the situation to be, Dahlia, finally the polls will be polling about actual candidates' lists and not what the pollsters surmise may be the lists. And I'm so excited for the polls to be more serious because they will actually be reflecting the political reality. So this day, by midnight tonight, we can consider this the opening shot for the real campaign. Up until now, it was really just all a gateway drug to the true election season madness. So we'll know a lot more by midnight, things that we didn't know before, although, in fact, we actually know a lot of them already. We're going to know how many parties are actually competing, who the final mergers, breakups, etc. are, and who are the finalists of candidates within each party. I mean, just for example, my favorite party so far is called Us. Together we stand for a new social agenda. I love this party because I just love these bizarre esoteric parties. I watched them plead their case to the Central Election Committee and they were so earnest. But of course, we're never going to hear about them again. Angel, do you have an esoteric favorite or do you prefer those big name celebrity parties? Well, I used to enjoy pinning my hopes on some esoteric party. And there was back in the day when we all watched the television ads because that was the only entertainment we had before the internet and multi-channel television came along. You would also see some of these parties with very brief campaign. They were usually quite hilarious. But the truth is, is that ever since 2006, when an esoteric party named the Pensioners got seven seats, I've, I'm much more careful calling a party esoteric. The same is true of Jewish power, which was for so long a party that would never cross the threshold. So mock these parties at your peril. I do like mocking them a little bit, though. But let's ask one more question before we dive in. I think it's going to be like a guessing game. And we'll decide the final answer. We'll know the final answer. And then we'll talk about it next time. Who was closest to the true answer? And the question is, how many parties will actually register and then also be approved by the Central Election Committee by the deadline late tonight? I'm going to go for, you know, a random 37. And that's because often we see between 20 and 40 parties running, but closer to 40 in recent years. Angel, what's your guess? Well, apparently 57 representatives took forms from the CEC to file lists. So not all of them will fill in the forms. Not all of them have the number of signatures and other legal requirements. But at least 57 parties are possible. I think that will break 40. So I'm going to guess hmm, 44. But of course, the real question is not how many parties will be running, but how many parties will cross the threshold of 3.25% and get in. So last Knesset, just over a year ago, we had 13 lists of parties getting in. This time will probably be less because Bennett's Yamina has folded and Sa's New Hope has merged into Gantz's party. So looks like 11, but that's the real question because if not all those 11 get in, that will change, I think, the outcome. 
That's true. And I have to say that one of the few interesting things going on in the polls is a hot competition on some level between all the teeny little parties that are currently not crossing the threshold. But because of tenths of points differences between them, there's a lot of chatter about which one might be on the rise. Too soon to know, but we'll keep those in mind as well. So in this episode, we're going to walk through the ins and outs of who's actually running based on what we know so far, which is quite a lot. Which parties have changed or stayed the same? What are the open questions? Like, what are those differences and changes and mergers and breakups mean about the constituencies and what could be the consequences on the final outcome. We'll talk a little bit also about the Israeli-Arab question. Palestinian citizens of Israel, how much do they vote? Seems to be something that at least everybody left of Netanyahu is worried about because they are aware that the level of turnout among the Arab community in Israel could have a major impact. All this and more. Let's get started. As we talk about the final decision on the lists, I want to start with one bigger question, just to get us started. Why do Israelis register so many parties? Why do we have so many parties competing? Angel, do you have a theory? Well, the first answer is because we can. Threshold is low. It's a proportional representation system. So a lot of parties know that there's a chance of them getting it. But let's not forget that many countries where... There's no chance because it's mainly a two-party system or it's not proportional representation and therefore small parties have very, very, very small chances of getting And You still see a large number of bizarre parties running because just by running, you're exercising your democratic right not just to vote but also to be a candidate and anybody who watches the returns. For example, in British elections where most constituencies, you already know what's going to happen because they're not floating, they're, they're pretty solid. Where there's a lot of attention, for example, the seat where the prime minister or any other party leader is running, you'll see often a dozen candidates for parties which are non-existent, but they want to be seen that moment in the frame when the results are announced. And that in itself is, I think, a nice aspect of democracy. But more seriously, the Israeli system, it was decided in one short meeting on an evening between Ben-Gurion and the justice minister in the temporary government before the first election, they thought it was going to be a temporary system, and then they would have a, a constitution which would decide a more elaborate, well-thought-out electoral system. The constitution was never written, and therefore we're still stuck with this system. And this system works for Israel in many ways. We can talk about the many flaws in it as well. But it represents what Israeli society is, which is a society of many tribes, groups, and micro-groups, and the electoral system allows for them to be represented. And one of the questions I'm sure you get asked a lot, and I know I do, especially when speaking to, to audiences abroad, is why is, doesn't Israel change its electoral system? Countries do that. And I think the real answer is, is that with all its flaws, it does work for many different groups. And those groups have no interest in changing the system. I think that we should keep a couple of things in mind. One, the 3.25% threshold for entering the Knesset is the highest it's ever been. So it's not exactly low relative to Israel's history. And that's only a recent change from 2015. So it's not so easy to get into parliament these days. The other thing is that, of course, the system was developed in the beginning of statehood. But we do have such a thing as a parliamentary process by which even basic laws can be amended. And the basic law of the Knesset, which defines elections, has been amended over the years. The electoral system has been changed over the years, and it has been changed back to what it was before. There have been tweaks along the way. I think the problem is not so much in the electoral system as in the political culture, a rather more amorphous concept by which Israelis have simply trained themselves to think 
that either as voters, they need parties that are perfectly tailored, like a custom-made suit, to reflect his or her every opinion, and that's impossible. And I think also that many people in Israeli society have conditioned themselves to think that he or she could be the next great party leader because he or she will do a better job than everybody else that came along before. So I think we have a combination of you know, what Angela's talking about, sort of faith in the democratic system and a great reflection of Israeli society, and what I'm talking about, which I think is, frankly, a little bit of political immaturity. But let's move on to what we've actually learned since yesterday when the registration began. There are a lot of things that didn't really change from last time in some parties where we didn't see so many surprises. For example, Likud, Shas, Israel Bitenu, that's Avigdor Lieberman's party, and Yeshatid, at least their party formations remained the same. They didn't even have much speculation or rumors of changes. So no media chatter around them. Voters knew who these parties are and who they would be. You know, they maybe were in a little bit of suspense about who would be the candidates on the list. What does it say that there are, first of all, four stable parties in the Israeli system, but only four? Well, you're saying no surprises, like it's a bad thing. (laughs) That's a good point. We could probably use a fewer surprises in the Israeli political system. Well, all the parties you've mentioned, Likud, Shas, Israel, Beteinu, and uh, Yeshatid, though they have different ways or different forums which decide the list, they're all very much controlled by one person, Likud by Netanyahu, Israel by Tenor Lieberman, and Yeshatid Yaglapid. And even though Likud claims quite correctly that it has the most democratic system, party-wide primaries, over 100,000 members and so on, while the other parties we've mentioned, are, it's basically decided by the leader or a tiny committee, which reflects the leader's wishes. In Shas's case, it's officially a rabbi's committee, but we all know that, whatever, the committee rubber stamps. But we all know that uh, the committee of Torah, the council of Torah sages, basically rubber stamps whatever Arya Derry wants. So these four parties are very much parties that are stable because... Whoever's at the top is secure. Nobody's really threatening them. While the other parties, some of them like Labour, have long traditions and also do have either primaries or their own systems, the leaders simply, they don't know whether they'll be the leader of the party in the next election. They don't even know if if they're going to have a party in the next election. So in this case... It's very much a question of stability coming from the top. Which is interesting. I wonder if the voters seem to care about that stability. I mean, two of these parties that are among the most stable in the Israeli system are also the two biggest parties. So maybe voters reward those parties that, you know, stop with all the shenanigans and just continue being what they are. Now, Angela, I know that you think it's very important that Netanyahu had certain choices for members that he could slot into the candidates list in Likud. Let's just talk about them briefly. Some of the interesting ones, I think, are, well, now I'm saying what I think are the important ones, are each Dietz Silman and Ami Shikli, who came, both of them, as defectors from Yamina, which I guess I think is interesting because it's basically sort of thumbing his nose in the face of Naftali Bennett and saying, you couldn't keep the government together and you couldn't even keep your party together and I've nabbed some of your most prominent people. Tell us about Moshe Saada. Why do you think he's important, Anshul? We've talked about him before. Well, before we talk about the personalities, one thing Netanyahu does when he builds his party list and when he prepares for an election isn't just to think, okay, what people can I put on the list which will make the list more attractive to voters? He's also thinking about how the coalition building will go afterwards. And and I think that's something that most of the other party leaders don't do. Netanyahu, Silman and Shikli in this case, Netanyahu is already broadcasting to the next generation of defectors from the rival parties. Look how I make sure that defectors who've left their parties and joined my coalition 
will not be unemployed after the election. Here are Shikli and Silman, who left Yamina Bennett's party and jeopardized, in Silman's case, you could say, ultimately brought down the coalition. They're being rewarded. They're not being left out in the cold. And this is something that Netanyahu does constantly during elections. He's not thinking just about how many voters Likud will bring. He's thinking about how he's going to build a coalition. And he's been doing this for, for many, many election cycles. He doesn't think just of the election. He's thinking, sadly, unlike other leader parties who don't do that, he's thinking of 12 moves ahead. And sad, that is interesting. He was basically unknown, except for one interview he gave. He's the former deputy chief of the Justice Ministry's internal police investigations, basically department which is supposed to keep the police in check, hasn't been doing a very good job of it in recent years, a matter which has been reported extensively in Haaretz, mainly by Josh Breiner. And Saada suddenly became prominent for a very short moment a few weeks ago when he gave a primetime interview on Channel 12, making some of these accusations about how the police was being run, and especially against the previous commissioner, Ronnie Alshech, who spearheaded the investigations against Netanyahu. And of course, he became really prominent when we talked about him on our show back, I think it was in July already. So I think Netanyahu is keeping him for some kind of uh, further operations in the future to undermine the courts where he himself is uh, currently on trial, whether it's as prime minister and he'll try and use Sada to justify various moves to dismantle the legal establishment. Or if he doesn't uh, win, he'll still have Sada to for his campaign against uh, whatever's happening. So I don't think Sada is there to necessarily bring any votes. But what is interesting also about Nearly all those new candidates that Netanyahu has brought into the list, there are a few others slightly lower down on maybe less realistic spots, but Netanyahu handpicked them because nearly all of them, for the exception of one Israeli-Ethiopian candidate who's also there to broadcast to a specific group of voters, they're all either kippah-wearing or hat-wearing, but they're all members of the Datilu, mean the national religious community. Netanyahu is certainly signaling to that uh, group of voters, whether he wants to somehow curb the rise of RZ or to ensure that the new old Ayelet Shaked Jewish Home Party doesn't get anywhere near the threshold. This is very clearly a segment of voters he wants to target. And that's a great segue into the next segment of the parties where we saw some drama, some changes, some rumors and speculation of change and some ultimate unchanged formulations. But since you mentioned RZ, what that stands for, in case anybody's wondering, is religious Zionism, which sort of broke up, sounded like a Taylor Swift song, never going to get back together. But then they did get back together and they'll be running together. We have United Torah Judaism, which also had a big crisis. We discussed it last time, almost broke up, seems to have reached an agreement, got back together. Gidon Saar and Benny Gantz, who have merged their parties into a strange sort of formation, which we'll talk about. Labor and Merits, which as of this recording, well, there's still a few hours left for them to decide about merging, but nobody really thinks they will. Joint list, thought about breaking up, did break up, of course, with three and one. So Ra'am has been separate since the last election and in and out before that, but they are partly back together, at least the three parties. So we'll talk about all these. Let's just run through them really quickly. Angela, since you mentioned religious Zionism, I think that we should try to understand what they stand for now that they are back together and what it means for the constituency as you define it, that they appeal to? There is no constituency that they appeal to necessarily. So all their voters have nothing in common with one another? Basically, what all these groups have in common is that they want something which feels more radical, more 
right wing, more extreme, call it what you will, than Likud, and also not as hidebound and orderly as the Haredi parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism. Anybody who wants something more to the right, more nationalist. And in this case, it does mean that a lot of them come from various religious, nationalist, religious communities. There isn't one specific community that they come from. And I think that uh, pollsters tend to lump these micro-constituencies and communities into one group. Who would such pollsters be? You know, from a polling perspective, let me just, you know, jump in here with a little bit of expertise. We tend to divide the population into the main voting blocks. So it's not a matter of ignoring micro-communities within each blocks, but we try to look at the groups that are meaningful from an electoral perspective. And when you look at the community uh, within the Jewish population who define themselves as religious, not ultra-Orthodox and not traditionalists, there are a large portion of them, a very large portion of them, over half, who are voting for, well, let's say about between 40% and half who are voting as I see it, because, you know, the, the parties keep changing their formations, but by this moment, for one of the constituent parties of religious Zionism. That's a prominent portion of a voting block. Now, certainly there can be segmented groups within that, but in terms of what counts for voter outcome. This is why we look at these communities that way, and I think that is the main defining factor. Not to say they're not pulling some votes from secular Jews, but they are definitely Jews who are defined as right-wing. You don't have centrists or left-wingers voting for them, as far as I can tell. And I think that we have to recognize that they do have that in common. They're either religious or they're right-wing. And what that means is becoming something increasingly extreme in the Israeli political map. Yeah, but there's also a large number of first-time voters who are less defined. There's quite a large number of Haredi voters who are voting for them. Groups like Chabad, they're very, very popular. Chabad doesn't exactly slot into any of the groups. Well, they certainly slot into religious. Yes, but they, are they are they Haredi? Are they traditional? Are they national religious? They're sort of a group to themselves. So I, I, there's, I think there's a big risk in in characterizing, especially this party, which is in many ways a new party because it's bringing the Kahanists in together with what do, does represent, or at least did represent, the old school religious Zionists. And don't forget, you've also got a tiny, but we should mention a third party there, Noam, the homophobic family values, Jewish identity, whatever you want to call it. Which also did Netanyahu's bidding and agreed to run together with them, and as they have in the past. And, you know, now they are part of the entire package of what this party stands for. And also, I think, at least this is what some of the polls are indicating, and it's very interesting that not insignificant proportion of those uh, planning to vote for this party are people who don't usually vote, and that's according to some of the pollsters who have been talking about them. And we've also seen the vote for them fluctuating. So I would be very careful like, making broad judgments about them. And I also think that many people don't necessarily tell pollsters exactly how religious they are when, when that question is asked. And many of those people, even though they may be religious in their beliefs and daily lives, tend to vote for non-religious parties and just don't want to be labeled. I don't see evidence of what you're saying, but that's something that you've observed in your own way. So we'll have to leave it at that because we don't have a way to agree on what you're implying, which is that people are lying about or somehow or misleading on their religious identity and their electoral behavior. Again, I don't see that in the surveys. You have other reasons why you think that, but we won't be able to settle it here, as you say. I think we should discuss a related issue, which I think is 
just one of the more fascinating developments in Israeli politics over the last few years, and that's the drama, the rise and fall of Ayelet Shaked. We've raised this before. But just to remind people that, you know, five years ago, she was among the most popular politicians in the country. She was justice minister. She was leading a very popular program for about half the population who really appreciated that she was trying to, let's put this diplomatically, critique, reform the Israeli judiciary. Critics think that she was trying to undermine the independence of the Israeli judiciary. But half the population loved it. And many people thought she was going to be the next prime minister. Now, where is she? She's nowhere. Her party has broken up. She rejoined with the Jewish Home Party, which is not even coming near crossing the threshold unless we have some, you know, surprising change in the polls over the next few weeks now that the lists are closed. But I have no reason to think that we're going to see that kind of rise, considering her trajectory since the beginning of this election cycle has been downward. I think anybody who actually spoke with Ayelet Shaked and had sort of close experiences with her over the last 10 years or so. None of these people would have been believing this data that you say said she was popular because she perhaps was popular for a very short while. She was this kind of unicorn and secular woman, young woman from Tel Aviv who you would expect by the patterns of, uh, of Israeli society to be a left-of-center figure being very, very right-wing and joining what was then and is now going to, again, a religious right-wing party and partnering with Naftali Bennett and so on. It was too good to be true for many people, I think. And they wanted to believe in this unicorn that somehow the Tel Avivi secular middle class is coming over to the far right. And that's why she was popular for a short while. I don't think she, I don't think there was any real substance, not to her as a political candidate. Anybody who really spent time with her came away rather underwhelmed. And uh, it just shows how the data can't always be trusted when it comes to popularity of politicians. I mean, she's so deflated now in her ratings that you can't even understand how she was, by some people who should know better, was being thought as a potential prime minister at one point. Well, it's an interesting point about data because the data never pretends to tell you what people are going to think five years later. In 2017, the fact that she was so popular, I'm not sure why we would think that was misleading. There was no pretension to say in five years will she be popular. But I agree with you that if you you know listen to her statements, if you read her articles, and she did write articles, or who knows if she actually wrote them, of course, I realize. So what I'm saying is, given that We understand that many of the ideas she was talking about weren't written by her. Even when you read those ideas that were, let's say, written by people who should know better, they weren't very deep. And so it's nice to think that if you don't have enough substance, you collapse in politics. But I have a feeling the Israeli voters are not necessarily digging into the depth of her substance and simply moved on according to political you know, fashions and changes in the party system. We had another mini drama over the last few days, which is that United Torah Judaism did manage to get it together. They made a compromise. Now, we talked about this last time, so we're not going to go on too long about it. But are there any big takeaways that we didn't know when we discussed this last time about the compromise that they reached? Is it good? Is it bad from their perspective, Angel? Well, we're not going to go into the whole issue now of, of ultra-Orthodox education. And I'm sure many of our readers are aware that it's become, thanks to the New York Times, a big issue now across the pond. And thanks to your article analyzing that. But uh, use the word substance before. This is an issue of substance. And what basically what's happened here is this issue of substance, of how young Haredi men, boys are going to be studying and how their schools are going to be funded. I mean, this is a major issue for Israeli society and for the individuals studying in these schools. But this basically, it's been put aside and with some very empty promises by Netanyahu saying, I'll sort this out if I become prime minister. 
and allowed UT, UTJ to run together again in this election. So this is basically taking the substance out of the election. This was an issue that could have very likely split the Haredi community and split the main Haredi party. And it could have been a flashpoint for secular voters, too, to say, why is Netanyahu agreeing to fund these schools that don't teach sufficient core curriculum? It may yet turn out to be a major issue in this election, but so far it's basically the various wings in the Haredi world saying we're going to put our very important debates aside so we can still run together in this election and try and bring back the coalition of Netanyahu, of the right wing, far right and Haredim. Fair enough. Okay, let's go through the last few quickly. I think that voters and our audiences are already quite aware of the merger of Gidon Saar and Benny Gantz into a party that is now called National Unity. And I think that to my mind, the big takeaway there was that they didn't have a very strong or clear ideological identity. Gidon Saar, of course, comes from the right flank of the Likud broke away and represented a sort of center-right, but right-leaning center-right. Gantz was seen as somebody who represented the center, whatever that is in Israeli ideology. But I think that they have settled fairly comfortably into this identity. Anshul, do you want to add anything before we talk about the last great open question about labor and merits before we move on? Well, I think the Saur Gantz uh, party will be very interesting going forward because it's the other option. If this election is the prime minister against the former prime minister, one trying to stay prime minister, one trying to get back into office, then this option of having a party which somehow manages to take the current coalition and perhaps not all of it, but a large part of it, and take something out of the Netanyahu bloc and build something, even though that doesn't sound right now a very feasible prospect. For some Israelis, for some voters, I think it will be attractive. I don't know how many they have. They're not doing very well in the polls. Well, they're not doing badly. Let's face it. They are getting around 11, 12, 13 in the polls pretty regularly. That's not bad. They're not even doing as well as these two parties did separately in the last election. That's a very normal pattern for parties that merge, but it's very true in this case. So I think that once Israelis are, once we're getting closer to the election, Israelis are looking at the various prospects. And as you say, we're in the real polling period when we're actually polling about real parties and not uh, theoretical parties, then it'll be really interesting to see whether that option is something that Israelis are, are interested in. That's true. And I guess we should just say one more thing about them, which is that they are positioning themselves in their campaign and their message so far with the message that Benny Gantz is the only one who can form a coalition that is not led by Netanyahu because he has a better chance of forging a deal with the ultra-Orthodox parties. I don't know if it's true or not, but that is definitely what they're telling the voters over and over again. So we'll see if that influences voters and if it matters once the elections are all said and done. Now, what we still don't know is whether labor and merits will actually merge together. The chances are very, very slim. We've talked about this before. So I think what we'll do now, instead of trying to analyze what we don't know yet, is talk about the joint list because they do seem to have forged an agreement for three of the four parties to remain together, which is essentially what the Arab voters have wanted. In fact, to the point that I find that voter turnout among Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel is almost, you know, one for one directly linked to whether those parties are together or not. Now, of course, Ram is still running separately. But voter turnout among the Arab community is such a big deal because there was such a gap last time. Only 45% voted in the last election relative to compared to, you know, over probably 75% or even higher among the Jewish vote. And that led to a very right-wing skewed turnout of or result of the election. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. Anshul, what do you think about the uh, politics in the Arab parties in Israel? Well, the Arab parties in Israel are basically victims of the electoral system. We talked about how it works for everyone else. In their case, 
And some would say this was the reason why the threshold was raised to 3.25%, because it, it really is something that keeps out those separate parties, whether it's nationalist ballad or sort of Arab bourgeoisie ta'al and communist Assad-loving Khadash, they're all beneath the threshold. And therefore, despite the fact that they have very little in common besides being Arab-Israeli or Israeli-Palestinian, they have to run together. And that's what Mansour Abbas's split and independent run was so significant. He said, I can make a different type of Arab party, not just people like me who are sort of conservative Islamists, but also people who want to be part of the coalition who are saying it very clearly, we want to be part of any coalition. And the real question is, are the sort of historic differences between the various Arab communities within Israel, which have communities and ideologies within the community, which have more has defined the splits between the different parties, is that what's going to define them going forward? And those still in the joint list are sort of saying we are still very sceptical about the Mansour Abbas project, and we don't think we're going to be part of a coalition, though there are different views, and some would say Ahmed Tibi's tar is much more amenable, while Balad probably will never, ever join a coalition as long as this country is called Israel. And remember, it's interesting that Ta'al at one point was running together on a joint slate with Ra'am years ago. And so these parties can some ways often bridge what would seem like big ideological gaps over the issue that I think is very divisive in the uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, which is sort of integrationist versus isolationist. And that is becoming more and more of a wedge issue. Should they cooperate with the Israeli government, even join the coalition, and even maybe eventually join in ministerial positions, which is an additional division within the community? You know, it's not just about joining the coalition. It's also about the question of whether to actually join the cabinet. And those who would say, no, we have to always act as opposition. That's our role in society. Of course, the community itself is as diverse, at least, as the communities we were talking about before, and very deeply segmented, but I think that they have a lot of shared interests on one of these ideological questions that I just mentioned when it comes to voting. Yeah, because first of all, you need to survive. And if uh, you've seen that the chances of, of dropping below the, the threshold are high, then you don't run separately. And if you've seen that if you run together, you can also boost turnout, then that's, 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 a, that's a significant incentive. I mean, at the end of the day, these are electoral considerations, not ideological considerations. And the real question is, like I said, how long will the joint list last when basically the different groups there have di very different interests? And they're still sticking together, I think, partly because the intervals between the elections are so short, there isn't really the time to kind of coalesce around different ideas. I think if we would have a two or three year period, finally, between elections, I think that the representation or the, the way the representation of Arab Israelis is structured will change. Very likely could be. I think there's two more points that I would want to keep in mind. One is that we will try to delve deeper into this issue with guests and analysts in coming episodes. And the other issue is that there is such a great sense of expectation on the part of all of Jewish voters who are opposed to Netanyahu, that if these parties do well, if citizens turn out in high numbers, that somehow that will block Netanyahu's return. I think that's an assumption we should call into question because, of course, the, uh, the final decision rests with the party leaders. And as we've seen from Mansour Abbas, he can go one way, he can go the other. So I think there, there are many open questions around this community and its parties. And that is going to make or break the results of these elections. Go back 20, 30 years, you had a much larger proportion of Arab Israeli voters voting for, call them Jewish parties, which in the last 10, 20 years, you've barely seen it's really gone down. And that is also something that the parties should be asking, especially Labour and Merits. Why in the past they did manage to 
attract larger numbers, not massive numbers, but you could say a couple of seats worth at least Arab votes. And now they're not doing that. That's very true. And I hope we'll have a chance to discuss that. I think that both the Arab voters are thinking and the way the non-Arab parties are thinking about the Arab voters. I think that's true. And I hope we'll have a chance to delve deeply into the question in future episodes. But now we'll have to just be in suspense until November 1st. And we are at that time of each show. It is party time. And Angela, you're the party animal today. Take it away. I'm always the party animal. So since we've been talking about parties running together, merging, splitting, and so on, and the lists are basically not the parties, and in many cases, lists can be multi-party, what's the largest number of parties ever represented on one list, Alia? Oh, gosh, I have a feeling this is going to be a tough question. I'm going to say four or five, even. Let's look at what we have now. We have a couple of parties which are representing three, religious Zionism, who are both joint lists. We've got the Gantz. But the joint list in the past, of course, has represented four. Four may be the record, though they weren't the first to represent four. No, definitely not the first. To the very first election, the Chazit Datit Mouchedit, the Joint Religious Front, was four parties, and we had a couple of other... And naturally, the Likud, of course, itself began as a merger of at least three parties, maybe even at four at some point. So is that your guess, Likud? No, my, oh, you're asking which one. I thought my question was the number. I'm going to guess five is the upper limit. And which party reached it? I have to say that um, right now I cannot take a guess because so many of the parties are amalgamated parties. So I'm talking very technically about a, a list which represented what were then five separate parties. I was right on the number. It happened once in the 1973 election. Do you know which party? I don't know offhand. It was Likud, as you mentioned. Aha, uh-huh. so I was almost right. In its very first iteration, first time Likud ran under that label, it already had run for a few election cycles as the two main original parties, Cherut, the original revisionist party of Menachem Begin, and the Liberal Party, which was a centrist, slightly rightward-leaning Quite important party in the 50s. And Turns out to be quite important also in later years, or at least some of the people who emerged from the Liberal Party. But they emerged into Likud eventually, but they were still running as a multi-party or a two-party list for most of the 60s and early 70s. In 1973, Likud finally came into being. That word Likud obviously means consolidation, which nowadays Likud is a byword for right-wing Israel, but then it was just a, a generic term. And so it already had two parties. It had Cherut and it had the Liberals. It had what was called the Rishima Mamlachtit, the uh, National Party, which, bizarrely enough, was originally founded by David Ben-Gurion when he broke with Mapai, but then he broke with them and they jointly could. It was the Merkaz HaChofshi, the Free Center, which was sort of a moderate right-wing party which had broken away and then rejoined Likud. I mean, it originally had been a revisionist group, but they didn't really get along well with Nachem Begin, but they somehow buried the hatchet with him. And the fifth party, the Movement for Greater Israel. So these were five parties which had either run together or existed independently, joining up to form what has been the most successful party in the second half of Israel's history, the Likud. So... Perhaps if Mirab Micheli will be listening to this before the deadline, she should know that joining various parties into one list is usually a good thing when it comes to election results. Sometimes can work out well. Having said that, many of the fragments of those parties have left Likud since because something didn't work out with all those. If you think of those parties as representing different ideological streams that somehow work together, they don't always work together. But 
It is an incredible piece of Israeli party history. That's the story. By next week, we will expect to see this campaign lift off. Polls will go wild, or they might not. They will definitely start to firm up and represent what people think about the actual parties instead of being completely unbudgeable as they have been so far. We are seeing so far really a solid 59 or 60 seats going for Netanyahu. No breaks for any would-be leader of Israel. Either that will continue or maybe it will change, but at least it will be reflective of reality. We are sorry to leave you in suspense about all of this, and we're sorry to leave you at all, but we'll be back next week. And a, a big thanks to our producers, Maya ben Nisan and Shani Aviram, and from me and from Anshul, here from Haaretz. I think we shall remain unbudgeable, as you just coined the wonderful term. <laughs> I love my new term. I'll use it. Put it this way, for Israeli politics, which are so sui generis, we need sometimes brand new words to describe them. Goodbye to all. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.